Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today on episode 95, we welcome Tony Shaw and Len Silverston. So Tony is new to the Data Leadership Lessons podcast, but is a well-known part of our data community as the CEO of Dataversity. Len's a returning guest and is known for both his work in data as well as Zen with Len, which will be especially relevant today. So Tony and Len, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. A pleasure, I'm sure. Thank you, Anthony. Really excited about this. So today we have a very special episode. And as we approach our 100th episode of Data Leadership Lessons, you know, we haven't had too many very special episodes, but this is one of them. And this actually comes, it, it kind of originated from a couple comments and, and, and just a moment in time that happened at the uh, DGIQ conference earlier this year where I was privileged enough to give a, a keynote talking about uh, leadership and data governance. And I made a statement during that keynote presentation where I had said, happiness is never being satisfied. And on the screen, I had this person who was riding a jet ski looking longingly at this yacht behind him. And if I can find that picture, I'll, I'll put it in for those of you watching on YouTube. I'll, I'll, I'll use a snapshot of that picture so you can see it. Um, so we will, uh, yeah, I, I talked about that and then you know, went through the rest of the talk. And then uh, Tony mentioned afterwards, because Tony does a lot of the administration of, of the different pieces of the event. And he mentioned, he's like, I wonder what Len Silverston would think about this with his Zen approach and his, his focus on uh, kind of uh, happiness and, and well-being and, and the kind of Zen side of, of all of uh, what we have to do. And so that kind of led to a couple different conversations. And I had a, an off-camera or off-podcast conversation with Len. And we kind of realized, like, why not do a podcast talking about just that? And so I invited Tony and Len here today to have that conversation and, and to kind of debate and, and understand, hey, what, what was I even thinking and what was I talking about? But then how does all of this actually connect to something that may be worthwhile for us data practitioners or leaders in our business that are trying to work with data or really anybody who's listening to the show, um, you know, what we might be able to take away and, and apply in our own lives and, and own careers and whatever, um, uh, whatever capacity makes sense. So to kick things off before I kind of hand the reins and the moderation duties to Tony, um, you know, Len, let's start by just what was your reaction when I said that during the keynote that, that you were at, where I said happiness is never being satisfied. Yeah, I was in the back of the room and my reaction was, <laughs> my reaction was, this does not compute. Um, <laughs> if you look at the dictionary, even in Merriam-Webster, it defines happiness as being satisfied. Uh, if you look at my Zen background, uh, so I've studied all different uh, means of spiritual development for the last 30 years, and not only Zen and Buddhism, but all, uh, all of them have to do with the core root of suffering is about craving, aversion, attachment, basically not being satisfied with what is at the, at the core of it. Um, I also loved what you said because it was so provocative in my mind and it helped me tremendously what you said because there's always two sides of things too 
near Neil Bohr's um, uh, a, a, a amazing Pulitzer Prize scientist said the opposite of any great truth is also a great truth. Uh, so it was wonderful that you said that, and it's led to discussions that I've had with colleagues about this. So I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's interesting it. how, how one simple statement can, can lead to so much afterthought. Um, Anthony, I think you have to, you have to maybe fill in a bit for us. You, you clearly made that statement knowing that it would provoke a, a response. You knew it was not the conventional idea that most people had in their head. Uh, about what happiness was. So um, can, can you give us your side of that? Because my reaction was uh, exactly as Len has, has stated. Yeah, to, to a point, I was, uh, that was what I was hoping for. Um, you know, <laughs> definitely when I'm creating a talk like that, especially a keynote, like I am, I'm trying to go heavy on entertainment and being provoking like, like Len talked about, but I also want to think deeply about something and what occurred to me uh, as I was thinking about applying leadership and data governance, and, and I've often asked classes or groups at, at events, you know, who here has wildly successful data governance? And it is rare. We actually had one of the first, like, legitimately convincing arguments that we have wildly successful data governance at the most recent event. I'd never gotten a yes before. And this person actually was like, yeah, kind of do. We're, we're pretty good at this. And I'm like, that's great. But but my, my point is, is that we're never satisfied with our data governance efforts. We're always looking to do more. We're always always challenging and adding to the stack of things that we have to do. And I said, you know, I can't willingly approach this from a dismal state. I can't say data governance is suffering. I am not willing to sign up for suffering. I'm here as a change agent. I'm here to try to improve things. And I have to be okay with the fact that we will never be done. We'll, I have to be okay with the fact that we will never achieve every single thing we would like to achieve because we will never have enough resources to make that possible. And so I tried to play with that statement by saying what on its surface seems immediately, and, I, and based on your two reactions, it, 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 it achieved this, is that the, the literal way you will hear it and interpret it is naturally revolting. Like it is like, no, that can't be right. But at the same rate is the alternative, right? And that's where I love Len's point that you know, the, the, the opposite of a great truth is also a great truth is, is that was kind of what I was going, not knowing that that was a thing that had been said before, because I really wanted to play with this notion that it's not suffering. It's actually really important and incredibly rewarding to be even moderately successful with data governance. And we should celebrate that. And that's really what I wanted people to arrive at but I, it ended up being, I think, too provoking that it, it didn't actually get to that point in the conversation. It was just something that I knew would be, you know, memorable, but maybe not memorable for the right reasons. And so that's where I'm kind of glad I get this opportunity. Well, yeah, mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the thoughts that it brought out in me is that like when you do a mission statement in an organization, uh, many people have talked about a mission statement is never achievable. It's something shooting for the stars. And if it's something that you can achieve, it's not a great mission statement. 
And I think that's the point you were looking at to say, let's strive for the infinite. Uh, great members of our human race have succeeded in creating unbelievable things because they've had this huge mission, this huge vision. And maybe that's what data leadership is about, setting this huge, unachievable <laughs> direction. Sorry, I'm laughing because I, I feel like we're elevating this topic to the status of, um, <laughs> you know, breakthroughs in, uh, in physics or something. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I agree totally with Len. That, you know, you, you <laughs> kind of got to shoot for the stars just to, to get to the moon. I'm curious. Getting to the moon is. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not really disputing that, but um, we heard that we are hey, elevating Tony, to the status of. Oh, uh, pardon me. Uh, I, um, I said I agree entirely with what you're saying, Len, and I, I, I also agree that. Uh, you know, when we shoot for the stars, sometimes we we just reach the moon. But reaching the moon is a an incredible achievement. Um, and but setting that higher goal is often what's what's necessary. Um, uh, so really, no dispute I'm, for me. It's just uh, the the language that we're using here is is sort of elevating the entire topic to a, <laughs> a really grandiose level and. Um, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I'm just a little more modest about, uh, setting expectations. <laughs> well, one of, uh, one of my clients in data governance, we were looking at the mission. And by the way, this was an extremely successful data governance effort. They had a huge return on investment. It actually won the international achievement award for data governance. And one of the things that really helped is this objective of saving lives. It's a medical firm. And it was all about, it's not about quality data. It's not about uh, reducing risk or creating profit. It's about saving lives. And by people having that as their mindset, it was such a great inspiration for people to say, wow, with every, um, way we identify a, a, an undermatch or overmatch of patients, uh, that can actually result in somebody dying or somebody living. Uh, and I encourage yeah. that uh, for all data governance and data management efforts to say, hey, how do we be really clear on the mission? Thanks, Len. Yeah, I, I think we're seeing that a lot in uh, the case studies and stories of successful data governance programs. Um, is tying the mission to to the business mission, adopting the business mission as the data governance mission, as opposed to defining a specific data governance mission, um, if that makes sense. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, I, I guess logically it's sort of a subset of the business mission, but if the, those things absolutely have to be, have to be well aligned. Um, if not perfectly aligned. Yeah. Yes. I, I've always seen data governance as, as a tool. It's a step on the process. It doesn't really have its own 
conclusion because the conclusion should be to support the business, to, to help the business be more successful as a business. Data is an important driver of that. But if we only focus on how good are we with data, we end up with this kind of misalignment to what's actually important. If we focus, oh, let's be data. It's, it's like the security folks that will lock everything down so nobody can do anything. That's not the strategically optimal strategy either. Like it, it's not what we can't exist in a vacuum. And so this evolution towards a greater connection to the business is extremely important in my mind, because the further away we are from those core business objectives, the harder it is for us to remain aligned. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely, you know, that alignment resolves all sorts of other issues that people have consistent problems with, like gaining executive support or gaining funding or, you know, sustaining a program. Um, if, if the contribution to the business mission is more clear and obvious, then a lot of those issues go away. Now, what also provoked me, Anthony, was not only about happiness can never be satisfied. So not only the part about being satisfied, but the part that you brought in about happiness, because let me be clear about one thing. Happiness is not my goal. It's not my, if you look at Merriam-Webster or if you even look at the etymology of the word happiness, it comes from the word hap, it happened in the 14th century. It basically means to have good fortune and it means to have pleasure or satisfaction. If you look at our contentment, that's what it means in the, uh, in the, in the dictionary or in the meaning now, it means different things to different people, but let's say that's the meaning. I think it's a fool's game to chase after pleasure, contentment, because sometimes we're content, sometimes we're not, and that there is a much better way to live. My goal is to live well. So if we're unhappy, if we're unsatisfied, let's be satisfied with being unsatisfied. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's be okay with it. And more of the goal is equanimity with everything that is okayness, acceptance, being with whatever is. So if we chase happiness, um, there's a phenomenon that's happened in my life. And according to many scriptures, like many scriptures will say, uh, achievement will never lead to happiness. Like for instance, there's a paraphrase from the Course in Miracles that talk about that. That achievement is, this is not from a scripture, but the way I look at it is like a, eating a good meal. You ate a good meal, okay, that lasts for an hour. <laughs> so my own experience, I go for my master's degree and I say, if I could only get straight A's, the rest of my life will be happy. And then I actually got straight A's and the happiness fleeting lasts for two days, you know, okay, on to this. And then if I could only do this, so it's an endless bucket. So this um, idea of happiness is a, um, is a difficult thing. And in data governance, are we about achievement and success? Are we about happiness or are we actually about something even deeper, uh, deep contribution, uh, deep living in a way where we're not chasing pain and uh, not chasing pleasure and re, uh, getting away from pain, but we're just living to the fullest. 
I, I okay, like that so a I'm, lot. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Tony. Um, I'm I'm a little torn as to how far into um, uh, you know philosophy we we want to get here. My my first question is. Um, I'd, I'd love to see this, um, a, a rewrite of the Declaration of Independence, I think, with um, a different uh, terminology used here about the pursuit of um, whatever. Uh, we'll, let, we'll let you rewrite that one, uh, Len. Um, oh, I've written it. I don't subscribe to it. Sorry for all you Americans. But... <laughs> um, uh but you know, I've I've had my own personal journey uh, around this space um, uh, over the past year or so, and um, uh, it was after reading a book called uh, "No Mud, No Lotus" by Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. Uh, uh, there's there's a lot of YouTube videos, and I've I've quoted this to many of my friends. So if they're they're watching this, they'll recognize it. But um, yeah, the 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 idea there was about not um, being resistant to suffering and, and suffering in this context uh, is it, pretty much anything that's negative or that stresses you um, and not trying to resist it, which tends to be our natural inclination in, in the West is to push against it, avoid it, uh, get upset when it happens, um, as opposed to sort of letting it flow through you, absorbing it and learning how to manage it better. And I, I think that goes to your point about living well is, um, it, you know, it becomes a much more obtainable objective to live well if you can can accept that suffering is, is going to exist um, and you know, your, your only strategy cannot be just to push against it all the time. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, to put that in the data governance context, um, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm going to divert us just a little bit here and say, how does, how does the function of data governance differ from the function of accounting and financial management or the function of human resource management. To me, the, the only difference is really the level of maturity and, and the length of time it's been around that today, you know, 10, 15 years into the practice of data governance, we have to kind of continue to fight for resources, continue to fight for recognition uh, and support. Um, I, I've not, I, I'm not, I, I have an accounting degree, but I, I don't mix with uh, a lot of accountants and financial managers. But, um, you know, I don't get the sense that that function of the business is questioned in the same way that data governance is, is questioned. Mm -hmm. It's accepted that this is necessary. Uh, not every organization has an HR department, but any one of substantial size pretty much does. And I, I don't think the same questions, but, you know, you do hear stories about problems that exist with HR or with uh, financial management. And, you know, to put that in the context of today's conversation, um, I got to believe that the people who do those jobs are not 
constantly happy or satisfied with with the job that's you know with what's happening uh there are problems that come in this is why we have auditors and and um right you know why there are lawsuits over <laughs> hr mistakes um i guess i'm getting to anthony's point that you know that there is no constant satisfaction or happiness with how these things go they just uh they have ups and downs and to your point len you know there is suffering in those functions that gets managed and people move on uh to the to the next day and deal with it again um anyway i i, I guess maybe I, i'll ask you you know it, am i off target when i say that i think data governance is is going to eventually get to a similar level of acceptance as hr and accounting and and legal etc as a business function well um i think you raise a beautiful point there that we're newer than managing human resources managing finances now we're managing data and you know i just published a two-part series called all the all data is suffering and uh did a did a seminar for you uh with, with dataversity on that uh, and the fact that it's newer and less accepted to manage this really important asset as data means that there actually is more resistance to it. So, uh, what I experience all the time on these data governance efforts is like, I'll give you one scenario at one client I'm working with, the data steward gets this real nasty email coming in saying, leave my project alone. This is a natural project. Uh, we don't need you. We're in a sprint like go away. And by the way, you don't know what you're doing. And, <laughs> and the data steward. Now we did a bunch of training, but the training kind of went out the door a little bit with this, uh, with this uh, email that comes in and she goes, gets on her computer, starts typing. How dare you? This is an enterprise wide supported by CEOs. We're going to do this. And there was suffering going on there. Uh. On and both sides, yeah. On both sides there was. And then um, she looks up at uh, a laminated uh, picture that we put in everybody's um, area, business area, with somebody exploding and with the top, don't react. It's a reaction to this automatic uh, thing. And just as about she's about to hit the send key with a nasty gram email in return, somehow the, le the left hand pulls the right hand finger off. And what she did at that moment was exactly what you described, Tony, which was this non-resistance to say, wow, this feels awful. Let's feel into it. Let's be with the suffering. Actually be with that feeling, feel it. And Tekna Han is um, a teacher in the Vajrayana uh, form of Buddhism, and he and, and many of his disciples talk about five very important things not to do. Don't ignore, don't suppress, don't indulge the suffering and don't fix the suffering. And probably even most importantly, don't identify with it. Just it's not even about letting it go. It's letting it be being with it, being with this really awful feeling 
because as you pointed out, data governance sometimes gets this resistance. Just being with and what actually happened in that story is she walked around the block for a couple of hours, then finally said, okay, I'm calm, let's go approach this person. And the person automatically apologized, said, oh, I had a bad day. So um, we could apply the suffering happiness principles in this field. And yes, I think to answer your question, data governance at some point in time will probably be as well recognized as human resources and as finance. But for the time being, uh, perhaps we might have a little bit more suffering. So let's learn how to let's learn how to be unsatisfied. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. To to pull this back a little bit to like the date of the day, like that, because I'm really enjoying this, but it, it, it ties in with the point I want to make is I, I think sometimes about, you know, the the work that I have, the my, my day job and, and we're in the middle of a big project. And, and, you know, sometimes the problems that we're contending with can feel just overwhelming and so difficult. It's like, why are we here? Like, why? How did we get into this mess? And then I also think, and, and this is what I, I coach the team on a lot, but I think it ties in exactly with what you're talking about. It's like, but look at these problems. These problems are beautiful because these problems are A, so much more pleasant to deal with than the problems we were dealing with a year ago, but B, they are direct, direct consequences of the success that we've had to get us to this new level of problems. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this wonderful? And that's the other mentality that I had in kind of the back of my head when we're talking about this, this happiness is never being satisfied. So there's new problems, but these problems, look, let's celebrate these problems. Let's enjoy these problems. And there's those moments where I'm like, you know, every now and then I get this moment of like, I love what I do so much, even though it's a headache, even though I'm exhausted, even though I come on here and I'm like, what am I doing next? What's the next meeting? I'm literally walking to a meeting that I don't even know what the meeting is half the time, right? I'd be like, where am I? Which room? Like what, what Zoom? Is it Zoom teams? What? But it's, it's, it's recognizing that you're putting energy towards a productive goal that is, is challenging and rewarding in the work itself. And that to me is what it's about. It's like, I, I like Len, when you said live well is the goal, like to me that happiness is never being satisfied. It is a less eloquent way of saying live well. It's, it's <laughs> recognizing how this is the role. This is the journey and it is something that can be enjoyed. And it, and it, it stemmed from this notion that happiness derives more from what you create than what you consume. And, and, and it ties into like, when you hit that achievement, that achievement and, and the, the, the happiness you get from that is fleeting. It is, it is, it is superficial at best. It is, it is the junk food of happiness. And that's where I think if we can find those things that are more deeply satisfying or more deeply um, meaningful to us, that is a much better uh, goal, a much more achievable goal than um than than hitting some sort of target that we've said oh this is how you become successful this is how you become happy is once we get here this is when we'll be happy and and we talked previously and i'd like for you to talk a little bit about um this notion of being versus doing because i think that's a really interesting concept as well yeah. if you wouldn't mind kind of going down that path a little bit for for the folks listening um sure so at all these data conferences and, uh, you know, um, I mean, I, 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 I talk about Zen with Len and what's the difference between data and Zen. Zen is just a word that means awareness. 
And we're a human being. We're not a human doing. And what's happened in our data world is we're bombarded with data. You've uh, both seen part of my presentation where I take a glass and I take water and I fill the water glass and it's overflowing. And sometimes I put it over Tony or Anthony and it fills over and it's and, and I wait for people to say the word stop because people say, what do I do with this data? I analyze it. What we're so busy doing, doing is a very important thing. Achieving, creating is a very important thing. But it seems like in our society, especially in America, we're so focused on doing and getting someplace uh, where there is a source of great contentment and satisfaction with connecting with being. I've experienced that ultimate, unbelievable feeling even now of just being, there's no need to do anything, but they both have a place now, what happens in our data projects is we get so overwhelmed with stuff that it gets in the way. You know, we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of information every day on the internet. That's one with 18 zeros after it. You could take pennies and line the earth five times with a quintillion pennies. Uh, it, it's, it's so much tweets and social media and pressures and data that we're not conscious in what we're doing with our data governance, with our data management, with our life, that we need some space. It's so important to be effective in doing, to have that balance, not only to be successful, not only to have the fleeting achievements, but to live well. When, um, Sorry, Anthony, go ahead. I just wanted to point out one thing too that, that came up in our prior conversation that I think was really interesting that I had never known as, as not being much of a student of this space previously is the whole uh, yin and yang containing being and, and doing with, with a little bit. And what, what exactly do, do those two sides mean? I don't want to paraphrase poorly when I have a, a much more knowledgeable person on the line. Yeah, there's a yin and yang symbol and the yin and yang symbol has part of it with a curve in it, and part of it represents yang or the doing or the achievement or the creating and part of it is just being except in each part there's a little dot in it that says on the doing there's a little dot that represents being and in the being there's a little dot that represents doing so even when we're just sitting and meditating we're still breathing uh, so there's this flow between being and doing and the ultimate way to be in Eastern philosophy is the middle path, which is a, a, a healthy combination of these two. Yet in our society with social media, it appears to me that there's so much more of the yang, so much more of the doing. The numbers and the statistics on stress are staggering what we're doing to our minds and bodies. We're all ADD. They say the average attention span is 17 seconds for human beings these days. Uh, we're, we're bombarded in our media with a thousand images. They say the average person gets 
5,000 advertisements per day per person. Um, so how do we create that appropriate yin and yang? Then um, uh, there's the notion in, in mindfulness of being present, you know, being present in the immediate moment. Yes. Um, can, can you just relate that to what you've introduced here? Absolutely. Why, why, that's, why that's important? Well, one reason it's important is because that's all that exists <laughs> is the present. So here now is all that exists. So if we're going to live well, we can only live in the present, which it's ironic that the present is synonymous with a gift. Everything is a gift. And if we're in the past, we're not fully here. We're not fully living. If we're in the future, we're not fully living. Intuitively, we'll know how we can use the past, but do so in the present. So we're, we have this gift of life that if we're not here in the present, the whole gift of life gets diluted. And same thing with data. People misunderstand what data is. Some people say, well, data is a numbers, data is facts. It's neither. If you look at the etymology of data, it means something given. All pieces of data are gifts. Everything that we experience is input. It's a gift of the present. So we look at this very moment, and if you go into it deeply and be with the present, I've had the privilege of being in monasteries for hundreds of days and being completely um, uh, immersed in the setting where we can just be here. Life becomes more full. It becomes you look at any, you look at a grain of sand and it's, oh my gosh, you looked at a piece of data like your face right now uh, or your faces. And it's just, <laughs> like a mushroom trip. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. That's what, that's actually what mushrooms do. That's what muscle psilocybin do. They open up the mind to allow us to be present and everything gets magnified. So you know, we say, oh, we're hallucinating on mushrooms, but I wonder if we're hallucinating here, not on mushrooms. And we get more in touch with all the data. Um, so this idea of being present means sucking the marrow of the bone out of life to be here. But what we do is we take this thing and we put it on our desk and we're we're bouncing around they call it monkey mind and we do that in data projects uh, i've seen the most successful data projects don't do this but i've seen data projects with hundreds of millions of dollars the best experts in the world but they're bouncing around so much that not only are they not successful and not happy but they're not living well by the way this living well came from Aristotle. He said that that is the primary uh, goal of life. I figured if it's good enough for Aristotle, it's good enough for me. Uh, and uh, so 
how can you live well if you're missing out on the true gift? How and and that gift includes the rawness of I something happened. I have a disease. Somebody died. Uh, you know, in Viktor Frankl's work, uh, amazing work, uh, where he talked about the meaning of life. And he uh, wrote a book about his experience in the Holocaust. He said a lot of people's goal was to escape the suffering, the Holocaust. He says, no, 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 no. He came up with a whole philosophy of, no, we need to be with what is. The challenge of this incredible suffering through a Holocaust. A lot of my family died in the Holocaust, so it was a very beautiful book for me, but he says, no, whatever we're facing, just like you said, Tony, uh, what happens when we're unhappy? Okay, let's say unhappy. I don't know how you reverse that quote, Anthony, but let's say unhappy is being satisfied all the time. And uh, let's be with the happiness, uh, unhappiness. And then unhappiness gets confused. Uh, oh, I'm happy about being unhappy. <laughs> And we turn out to be living well because we're not missing the gift of unhappiness. We're not missing the gift. In Zen, we say pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. You know, pain is, ow, ow, my friend died. Ow, I got a disease. Ow, this didn't go well. And suffering is ow, 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 ongoing ad finitum for months or years. Um, yeah. So I want to take a crack at this, Len. So take if we say unhappiness <laughs> is always being satisfied, and here's how I'm going to I'm going to do it in, in the context of, of data governance, is that to me that almost has a lethargic connotation to it. Is is basically saying I'm good with the data how it is. That's fine. Right. You don't need any. You don't need an enhancement because I could also argue based on what we were talking about, data governance exists to help our businesses live well as businesses can in terms of functioning with the data and the inputs and the resources that they have to achieve their life's work, which is to be a successful business and to treat, you know, take care of their employees and customers or whatever. So data governance's role, and we may be eventually getting to the point where we're saying data governance is as important as life itself. I don't know, that might be a stretch, but the, the, the key is, is that data governance exists to help a business live its best life. And we need to care about the fact that if it if we aren't here changing things, helping things improve, then that business will not be capable of taking that and living well as, as, as much as possible. So that's that's my thinking and how it connects. It may be a bit of a stretch, but at the same rate, I think there's some nugget of truth to that. I don't I don't think that's a stretch at all. I really like that rephrasing, that reframing. Um, it's so interesting how you know, just a slight variation and how on the on the words that you can use to describe something can can be so impactful. But I, I love that idea of uh, I'm not sure that's going to make it to the boardroom with with, you know, great success, at least not immediately. But uh, I, I do love the idea because I think it it rings true to me that, you know, data uh, Governance, good data is is helping the organization and its participants live well. In uh, in a sense, I it, you know it's a very maybe it's not 
leading to happiness all the time. But, um, you know, in the context of what we've been talking about here, I think that's a really good way to frame it. I, I agree. Beautifully said, Anthony. Yeah. I was, I was going to say it sounded like a conversation had, had come full circle when Len asked, you know, what's the opposite? Because we started out with a conversation around that, you know, for every uh, great truth, there was, there was a, the opposite to a great truth was another great truth. Yeah. So it would be interesting to find what the opposite to Anthony's uh, great truth is, or maybe his is, is the opposite. You know, maybe we're starting with the opposite. We need to find the original. <laughs> well, uh, you also said something else provocative in your talk. I loved your talk because a good talk is provocative and entertaining and informative and helpful. And for me, it was all those things. What else you said in, in your talk is I love angry people. Now, what's interesting is in uh, Buddhism, there's what's called the three poisons, and anger is one of them. Uh, <laughs> I won't go into the others for now, but anger is considered this terrible thing, but it's an oversight because in my experience, and also according to many other spiritual teachers, true anger, conscious anger, means two things. It means I care and I'm present. When I'm really angry, and that's what you were talking about. You're talking about when there's no juice in life, when there's no purpose, when there's apathy, uh, then, oh, I'm not living well. I'm not living like excited. Like right now, I'm very excited about this conversation. It's really wonderful because uh, I care. Like if we can say one thing to anybody listening, to you that's listening right now, that can help your life, even in the slightest, um, that would be wonderful. So embrace your anger, but anger doesn't mean I'm going to go and slap you in the face. What it means is, let me show you anger. <sighs> I care about what you're saying. And Tony, yeah, don't suppress this. Embrace the anger. Be vulnerable with the anger. Uh, well, I kind of want to relate that to what you to the example you gave a few minutes ago, Len, about the the email from one from the developer to the, the data steward too. Right. There was anger on both sides of that, but absolutely sounds like there was a, a productive encounter following that. So absolutely, because there was anger without the reactivity. Right. So instead of reacting, there's um, responsiveness, which I call business intelligence. BI. <laughs> That's real intelligence when we can take that. And the steward realized how important that agile project was. And the agile person became intelligent and realized how important some standards were. And now you move from reaction to intelligent response by look, by seeing the data. I feel like we need to have this conversation on the beach in San Diego next. Uh, <laughs> yes. De definitely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much up for anything on the beach in San Diego, but this sounds like a great topic for that conversation yeah. on the beach in, in San Diego. But, um, you know, and, and I think we might have to table it until then because uh, we are more than out of time in, in traditional <laughs> data leadership lessons fashion. So um, I'm going to close it out. So, uh, 
guys, I, I really just thank you for being on the show today, for having this conversation. It's been delightful, and and I'm sure uh, I, I mean I learned a lot, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the the audience uh, also benefited. I, in, in, I did in too. Ways. Learned a lot. Thank you both. Me also. So thank you guys. And, and thank you all for, for joining us today. As always, you'll find more information and links in the show notes. Please go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out our past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. If you're enjoying Data Leadership Lessons and are interested in electric vehicles, check out my new podcast at electricdrives.us. We give you the information you need to transition to your electric vehicle future. And as always, stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.